So I have the privilege of being involved with a lot of intimate places of people's lives. <laughs> sometimes that's a, a, a real pleasure and sometimes that's a real challenge. But uh, <clears throat> uh, one of the things that I, I enjoy, what I get to do, is be a part of weddings. Sometimes weddings are fraught with drama uh, and, and so you kind of tread lightly. Uh, it's an emotional day and so uh, there's often tears and not good tears. But uh, there's, these, there's these real tender moments, you know, when there's the first look, when the bride kind of appears at the back of the sanctuary, oftentimes, and the, the groom is standing there. I always like to peek over and just see the groom's look, like this, this is a tender moment. And even the most kind of hardened of men kind of get, get kind of choked up at that moment. It's, it's beautiful. There's also this, this moment we have um, where there's this giving away of the bride. Um, and I don't think um, people understand what it takes for um, a dad to somehow just transition into, all right, she's all yours, because there's this, she's, she's always been mine. And um, there's, there's a letting go, and all the dads who have given away a bride just could have said, amen. Yeah. Um, I came across a story this week, maybe you saw it through your news feed, and it was a story about a wedding that took place. It wasn't a large wedding. Um, but the couple was um, Ginny Stepiend and Paul Menea. They got married in Pennsylvania. And as they gathered, uh, they did the traditional, he was standing at the front and she walked down the aisle with this man. It, there's a picture of it and it looks like every normal wedding. Um, what, what caught my eye, what this story was being told, it doesn't look like a particularly crowded, is that this man that she comes in as the giving away of the bride, she places her hand on his heart. Because up until the evening before, she had not ever met this man. She had heard about this man. His name is Arthur Thomas, and 10 years prior, he was about to die, except that he received a heart transplant. Because 10 years earlier, her dad was murdered by a 16-year-old and he was an organ donor. And Arthur Thomas was in, was in need of a heart transplant. She had never met him. There had been some letter correspondence between Jenny's mom and Arthur Thomas. And so the eve of the wedding, they met, and he got to bring her, escort her down the aisle, and give her away. Now, why do I tell you that? Why is that so meaningful? It's because of this. If you, have, if you give your heart, you get his also. If you give your heart, you get his also. There's something, even though dad couldn't physically be there, his spirit was, and at least part of his anatomy was there as well. Over the last several weeks, we've been talking about what it means for us to be one in Christ. Throughout history, throughout scripture, has been this kind of cat and mouse relationship called covenant relationship. God has wanted us to be one with him. The closest thing that we have to this is what we have when a couple would stand before each other and say, I do to one another, the marriage covenant. Because if you take the name of someone, you get everything that they have. And so throughout Scripture, we see God trying to create this covenant relationship with us, his 
fallible people. And so we kept breaking covenant throughout the ages. God would reestablish covenant. And finally, he sends his son, this blameless sacrifice, so that we could have a covenant relationship that could not be violated. And so his son comes using all sorts of marriage language, even referring to himself as the bridegroom. And so he presents himself with the idea of a new identity. That's really what happens, is that when you get wed, you no longer can think of me, you think of we. You get this new name and a new way, of cali new way that calibrates your life with this new identity. That's what's supposed to happen when we come into relationship with God. And so that's what I want to spend a little bit of time talking about, is the idea that when we walk one with God or take on his identity, um, what we get is a new identity. Uh, we get a new way of thinking. Jesus says several times through the book of John, I am, and I'm simply saying I am changes who I am. Who he is changes who we are. And this is the hope that's been given to us. So it's more than just a simple static decision where you just one time or another say yes to Jesus. It's a continual living out your vows to him day in and day out. Throughout, um, uh, so one of the things that we see throughout scripture though, I, I find there are some passages that are troublesome. <laughs> throughout scripture, I find these moments where I read into the text and I go, it's not that I don't believe that, it's that I've had a hard time experiencing that. And so when you read passages like this, see if this, if you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be given or done for you. This is to my Father's glory that you may bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. That sounds wonderful. I totally believe that. But the idea that I can ask anything in his name and it will be given is, is, is problematic for me. And so what I believe is that Jesus wants us to walk with a kind of confidence in our relationship with God, not a kind of confusion or in a kind of an apology or a kind of suspicion. He's inviting us to walk with a level of confidence. And so I think it's worth exploring what is it that we can grow in being confident more on? Because God's intention is that we would bear fruit that we wouldn't just have a faith that feels like a roll of the dice to see if God's going to show up, to see if God's actually going to be present. I think we can probably relate to this because there are times maybe in a job or in a workplace or in a particular friendship, you at times have a level of confidence in that friendship, in that security in that job, and then in other times it feels like maybe that friendship isn't something I can rely on or that job is something that I, I thought I could count on, but not... So, so we understand the, the precarious nature of these things, and, and it starts to kind of um, gnaw at our faith and our confidence. And yet I'm contending that Christ wants us to be confident in the faith he has so that we can do even greater things than he did. I totally want to believe that. I, I, I totally do believe that. I just don't often get to experience that. And yet I do believe that our, God's intention is that we would bear much fruit. And 
so um, what I want to do is look at a passage out of John chapter 15. John chapter 15, Jesus starts to talk about the vine. Let me back up by simply saying this. John chapter 14, let me set the context. Passover is around. This is like kind of Super Bowl season. It would say that people would make yearly pilgrimages back to Jerusalem. There would be upwards of a half a million people that would come looking to find hospitality within Jerusalem because this was like Super Bowl season where they were going to celebrate and commemorate the faithfulness of God throughout the ages. And so what you would have in most of these lots, they would build up. It would be like a little house with a flat and up above they'd have a guest room. Some might call it an upper room. This would be what Jesus gathered in the night before he was going to be betrayed and had that last supper. But on there, there would be an open fire. And so throughout Jerusalem, during the Passover season, you would have lots of open fires with roasted lamb. And so if you can start to get the feel, and maybe even a little bit more of the scent, the burning of embers, the roasting of lamb, you start to get this feel. The whole city is in unity celebrating the Passover and the faithfulness of God. And as they begin to gather around this place, this is the place that Jesus came together and washed the disciples' feet. This is where they came to gather. And Jesus, at that moment, was being confronted with his own imminent betrayal. This is the place that they would gather and break that last meal together. There was a kind of unity as the people of God. In fact, there was even a phrase that would come on and they would say, next year in Jerusalem. Next year in Jerusalem. And that was always the anticipation that at some point there would be maybe an overthrow just like the Hebrews had been led out of captivity and slavery by Moses, they kept waiting for the new deliverer, the new or the second exodus, that they could overcome what was then the Egyptians, but now they could overcome the Romans. And they didn't care how exactly it would look, but there was an anticipation, a hopefulness, that if we show up for this season, there might be a new normal. So year after year, they were kind of hoping that God would reveal someone else. And so this is the context. And so you have this, this place where Jesus then begins to exit out. He goes, um, he's on his way through to the Garden of Gethsemane. He goes up to the Mount of Olives. Before he goes through that, he goes through the Kidron Valley. And so there is this kind of departure that he's making. And he says in John 14, 31, come, let us go from here. So now that you have to look the feel, the smell. Now that you know the vibe of what's happening in Jerusalem, there is a party brewing. Jesus exits the party. And we pick up in John chapter 15. And let's just read some of these words. He says, I am the true vine, and my father is the gardener. Now, if you are a Hebrew, you would understand Jesus is using very nuanced language. There's a layer to what he's speaking about here. The vine, the nature of a vine, would have been a nationalistic symbol, and you can read about it in the Old Testament related to Israel. Now, what Herod had done in Jerusalem as he built his palace, he had engraved into the side of the palace this vine, and it was filled with gold and silver. So it's kind of an identification. It would be like us seeing stars and stripes and immediately thinking about, but Herod was trying to ingratiate himself to the Hebrew people. And so Jesus, as he's departing Jerusalem on his way to the Garden of Gethsemane, he, he starts to see the symbols around. So you're walking with kind of your inner circle of closest followers, and he's seeing the nationalistic symbols, and he says, you know what, fellas? 
You know what, ladies? I am the true vine. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit. He's personalizing it. He's speaking to his own humanity. And while every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Now remain in me. Another translation would talk about abiding in Christ. The way I like to think of it is being one in Christ. This is a new identity. This is a new normal. As I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. He's not making it conditional. He's not saying, if you can get enough things right, I'll remain in you. He's just simply, I'll remain in you. You remain in me. Abide in me and I'll abide in you. I am the vine. You are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. But if you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. And such branches are picked up and thrown into the fire and they are burned. Uh, if you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. This is to my Father's glory that you may bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. Now they have kind of exited Jerusalem. They're heading down. You have on the right what's called the Valley of Hanan. And to your left, you start to see the Valley, the Kidron Valley, which you would go up through the Mount of Olives and in ultimately to the Garden of Gethsemane. And Jesus is using this very everyday language as they're journeying, not making this stuff up, but using vivid illustrations, talking about the vine that's been carved into Herod's palace. And now he sees the Hinnon Valley. The Hinnon Valley was a place known for its eternal, smoldering, sulfuric flames. It was the city's dump. It was smoldering and burning because down there, downwind, it was just always going to be burning up the city of Jerusalem's trash. It had a name in Arabic, meaning Gehenna, which literally translates to hell. And so a lot of the figurative and teaching imagery is that is hell on earth. That place of trash and disposal and of waste. And it stinks to high hell. And so Jesus is saying, when things don't produce fruit like they were intended, they belong in Gehenna. And so they would have had this very clear picture, maybe even a scent of that, depending on which way the wind was blowing, of what hell even smelt like, because they just came from roasted lamb smell into Gehenna. And he's making his way, trying to paint a picture of what it means to remain in him, what it means to abide in him, what it means to be one with him. And so I would simply say that our design, our creation, our identity is simply this, that we can Branches are supposed to grow, they're supposed to bear fruit, and branches are also supposed to be pruned. Now, pruning isn't something that we love talking about. We love, particularly in Western consumerism, to add, to gain. I have all of my ambition and all of my prosperity, and I just would like to add God to it so it blesses me tenfold. And that's really suspect theology. 
branches, when we remain in him, are supposed to, they're supposed to grow. But growth is assumed. Growth is automatic. But it's what direction will we grow? So we can grow in different areas within our faith. We can grow in our cynicism. We can grow in our skepticism, in our unforgiveness. We can grow in our hostility and our hardness of heart. We can grow in our disillusionment. These are things that I've experimented with. <laughs> These are personal testimonies. We can also grow in our grace. We can grow in our generosity. We can respond to scarcity with generosity. We can grow in our forgiveness. Growth is assumed. The question is always, when, what direction? And so when he says, remain in me and I'll remain in you, growth needs to be intentional. Now, he created us with this, ideal, uh, this idea that we would bear much fruit. And fruitfulness is, is a really important thing for us to talk about because I think, again, as Western Americans, we tend to think of bigger is better. <laughs> and I would maybe argue bigger is more complicated. Bigger is often more expensive. Um, if, if you have more, you need bigger insurance policies. If you have more, you have more to keep up and be a steward over. Sometimes simplicity is a good thing. But in this passage, we start to see what it looks like when branches bear fruit. Now, vines were these stocky, short vines, and they would grow for like three years. This was common within an agricultural society. And they particularly, the vines were kept back because the vines, if they were cut back and not allowed to produce, that by that third year, it would be a bumper crop. It would be an abundance. It would be a kind of fruitfulness. There is something in us that loves immediate gratification. There is something in us that just wants to have some kind of results orientation right now. And yet Jesus, living inside of us, I think is grooming us for something more and something greater. And we don't always get to see the best dividends right away. My son has his first job at Lick Ice Cream. And there's a lot of things that come with just scooping ice cream and everyone wanting to taste, like, on average, eight flavors because they're all weird. Um, not the customers, the flavors. <laughs> um, but you sit there and you just wait, and people have a hard time making a decision. But what I'm contending is it's not that he's making great money, but he's learning some things that are going to pay great dividend, like some salesmanship, like some communication skills, like working your way up each rung of the ladder. There's all these wonderful things that will pay huge dividends, but you have to start somewhere. You can't just arrive with a college degree and expect a corner office. There's something that God wants to do in us uh, and develop a kind of character and a kind of um, sensitivity to the early days. And maybe some of you remember your first job and those humble beginnings or where you started or where we started as a church and our production value was rather minimal uh, and that feels kind of good. We're going for the low overhead church and I like it that way, but it feels like humble beginnings. But I stay hopeful that God is going to stir in us something 
that eventually catches on like wildfire. What's wildfire look like? Well, I think the fruit of the kingdom is always in multiplication. It's in the disciples. The fruit of Jesus's ministry wasn't that he spoke to the multitudes or that he confronted the most powerful people of the day and made sure they knew that they were in the wrong or convicted them. It was that he spent time very intentionally with a small group of people and seeded in them an idea that their life was more than just getting fed a meal, but they were to become fishers of men themselves. See, the dream of Mission Hills isn't that we would be Austin's next megachurch. The dream of Mission Hills is that you can be made known in community and you could learn the art of apprenticeship because you understand that wherever you are in your spiritual journey, in your career path, in your family dynamic, in your marriage, or in your parenting, that there's always someone further along that you can be gleaning from. And spiritually, we all need to have someone that we can just get safe with and honest with and receive maybe even some constructive critique from. But we also need to be able to steward that which we've experienced See, you can't unknow what you know, and you can't unlearn what you've learned. And if you have journeyed two days with Christ, there's someone that's journeyed just a day. Share what day two looks like and keep going. <laughs> My point is that the fruit of the kingdom is seen when we are able to host apprenticing and multiplying relationship. Recovery ministry, AA, would refer to it as sponsorship. The part of practicing your sobriety is also working out with someone else who needs to be made sober, even though you still have your own temptations. The Bible refers to it as discipleship, but we've kind of called it apprenticing, and I think that is the real fruit of the kingdom. Um, uh, and so he, he says to the disciples that they need to be pruned on a regular basis because the branch or the part of our life um, doesn't, it might not be producing fruit. Have you had people in your life that are willing to speak to areas that might need pruning? Have you suffered losses in your life that at the time they felt like such a loss, but looking back, maybe because God redeemed it, or it needed to be cut out, maybe it was an unhealthy relationship, maybe it was an unhealthy friendship, maybe it was an, a, a job that was producing more greed than generosity. Maybe it was um, a friendship that was producing more gossip than blessing with your words. But somehow we go through seasons of pruning and Jesus is saying, every good branch still needs pruning. In fact, if it's going to be fruitful again and again, pruning is the natural course. So growth is assumed, multiplication or... or, or Fruitfulness uh, Branches are also intended to bear fruit, but we're also, whether you're in Christ, whether you're following him or not, pruning is always a part of the equation. Did you catch that in the first part of this passage? Because when they're talking about pruning, it says that when it bears no fruit, the branch needs to be cut and thrown into the fire. But for even the branch that does bear fruit, it's still getting pruned. But... For a different reason. And that's what's really important to be able to pull from this passage. Because as he begins to unpack it, he says, the branch that bears no fruit um, is so that another might grow in its place. Right? 
Have you ever worked with a rose bush? You trim off the dead branches so that you can get that beautiful blossom sometimes later. The branches that are not producing fruit need to be whacked back. Why? So that another more fruitful one can grow in. What does that tell us? Is that wherever you are in your spiritual journey, there's always room to start again. You can always begin again. But if it's not bearing fruit, it needs to be cut off. But for the branches that are bearing fruit, they're trimmed back as well so that it can keep bearing fruit. In 2004, um, we together buried Laurel's mom. It was, uh, uh, excuse me, Laurel's dad. Um, her, her mom died two years later, um, but she was in a Bible study group. And um, it was at that time that um, uh, the, the ladies kind of rallied around her and and bought her this really nice rose bush. It wasn't just like, a, I mean, it was like, it, it was like this high, right? And, and so we planted it. We, we, we lived in the East Bay of um, San Francisco and we, we planted it. And then the problem is, is that like um, a year and a half later we were moving, except that it had so much, it had so much significance, right? You're like, oh, because, you know, we had been trimming it and investing in it because it was kind of the prized piece of all of our little, we had this small corner lot, but it was the rose bush that we weren't going to leave behind. And so um, we were moving to Austin, so we didn't think it would make the journey across the country. So we dug back into it and uprooted it. And my parents lived in San Francisco, and they had been there since 1968. So, I mean, this was the homestead, right? This thing's never going anywhere. It's going to have its new final resting place. Um, and so we planted it outside my parents' home in San Francisco. And uh, my parents are great with plants, better than us. And it just kept and got a couple of good seasons. The problem is, is that um, three years later, um, they did the unthinkable. They sold the family homestead. I'm like, are you kidding me? And so it was so hard. You know, I, I felt like I was either packaging up or throwing out my childhood. Uh, but then what to do? And they relocated down to the Santa Cruz Mountains. And one more time, it was uprooted. It had been planted and replanted. And there's a couple of pictures. This is what it was looking like in the off season. And then this is what you can see it's doing. And this thing has maintained a fruitfulness, but it keeps getting pruned. It keeps getting trimmed back. And there's these moments in our life that we want to shake our fist at God and say, how in the world could you allow this to happen? And God might just be crying next to you. God might just be easily as angered next to you. God might be feeling exactly like you and never intended for this to happen, but shares your emotion, but maintains the fact that he's a redeemer and can restore all things, can use all things, can heal all things so that you can remember them without the same dull or without the same sharp pain. Does that make sense? Two years ago, I was having a conversation. Just leave that picture up for now, Bear. I was having a conversation with a gentleman who is 68 years old, and um, I really look up to him 
and, and respect his counsel in my life. His name is Sam. Sam had, um, he has a PhD in theology and he's taught graduate level in seminaries and theological schools. He's been on multiple missions boards and is a kind of a, a authority in areas of world mission and developing countries. He's been a pastor. He speaks a couple of languages. Um, but Sam, a number of years ago, had to give up the thought of having uh, gainful employment. He's not a man of wealthy means, but his wife, who they'd been married for almost 50 years, had had an increasing debilitating health condition, not the least of which was a growing dementia. So the thought of having intellectual stimulation after 45 years or having emotional connections are starting to just be fewer and far between because you're not always connecting. If you've ever hosted a loved one in the later years of their life, um, you just keep taking your vows seriously. You keep loving because that's become the most native thing. And you have to understand, Sam felt very called to ministry. He couldn't hold down a job as a pastor. He couldn't hold down a job uh, overseeing any kind of nonprofit organization because the care that was needed for his wife was too much. But he would still maintain these mentoring relationships. He would get on Skype. He would get on phone calls. He would meet at local coffee shops and for breakfast. And he had the largest fear of of young Christian ministers and, and business professionals, but having an ongoing, intentional mentoring relationship because that's how he felt like he could still answer his call and still say, you know, be true to his vows. But as his, and I, so we're sitting here um, at breakfast and we're talking about hearing God and me sort of venting about whatever is not happening or God is not answering and God is not responding. We, we, we were specifically speaking about hearing God, and he told me, he says, so I was caring for Norma, and I had to get her all cleaned up. It's bathing is a little bit of a chore, but we had just gotten her all clean. I, we, he had just gotten her all fully dressed, got her diaper on, and she was all there, and right when she was just done, wouldn't you know, I just had this terrible smell, and she had messed her pants. And this was not an uncommon thing, but the timing couldn't have been worse. And so he's just like, oh, honey. And so he begins kind of to peel back the layers and kind of change her and get her all cleaned up. And as she's standing there with no pants, she goes right on the bathroom floor. And now Sam is across from me. I've stopped eating at this point. And with a tear coming out of his eye, he looks at me with all the love and the anger he can muster up. And he says, and when the stuff hit the floor... I just looked up at God and I said, that's it. I can't take it. Can you hear me? And here he looks at me with a tear streaming down his face, a 68-year-old man with a close to 50-year marriage. And he says, and what I heard God saying back with the same kind of angst and frustration and tearfulness is, We have such a way of wanting to throw stones at God, shake our fist at God, and I would contend that the things that you feel most near and dear are the same things God feels most near and dear. The same disappointment 
in, the, in our humanity and the frailty of life is the same thing that breaks God's heart. And God is constantly saying, can you hear me? Because I've called you to be one. Abide in me, and I'll abide in you. You were created to bear much fruit. So ask whatever you will in my name. Sometimes we ask in my name, not his name. Can you hear me? Because when we start to hear what God hears, we start to know what to ask more. And the invitation is to abide in him. Can I pray with you just as we close? And Richard, and I'm just going to invite you to come up and, and worship, but I don't want to just say amen or lead you in a prayer that you hear. I would like to just have you process maybe what the Spirit might be saying to you tonight. So just bow your heads with me. Close your eyes just so there's no distraction. And Father, we just want to leave room for the ministry of your Holy Spirit. I pray that you would add your grace to my words and add your exclamation point where needed. But would you speak with clarity? Father, I realize that your word is living and active. I understand that your perfect love casts out all fear. Father, I realize that some of the fear we're battling, the fear that we're dealing with is just old guilt. Father, we recognize that that is um, a battle for our own minds, and we want you to just fill us with your truth. Help us to walk in your way. Just to understand that perfect love casts out all fear. And what you did on the cross paid the punishment for us. And you are not keeping a ledger. We are more than our balance sheet of good choices and bad ones. So I pray that our lives would bear great fruit. That we would live a multiplying life, a legacy building life as we invest ourselves in others. That our faith becomes a living faith that becomes a deposit that we make. Whether it be in children, in neighbors, or in co-workers. So I would, friends, just simply ask you this question. Just ask God, what is keeping you from bearing more fruit tonight? I think some of you might need a word from God about your neighbors, your job, maybe your marriage or your children, about a friend whose life is spiraling. Ask whatever you wish, and it will be given to you with faith. God, give us a word. What's keeping us from hearing, from bearing fruit? And I would just invite you to ask, Lord, what in my life needs pruning? Is there a habit? Is there a thought process? Is there a relationship. Lord, only your spirit can direct us and guide us. It's only your spirit that brings transformation, so we want to hear from you.
just pray that you would have your will and have your way, have your rule and have your reign all over us. Mold us and make us, teach us and shape us, but have thine own way. Have our hearts 